Good morning and welcome to Rising. We have a great show for you today. I'm Amber Athey and I'm back with Jessica Burbank to bring you your Friday news. Good morning, Jessica. We're excited for another Friday. It's Jess and Amber back at it again. So what's up first for us today? Well, uh, Amber, Senate Minority Leader Mitch McConnell has been cleared by the Capitol attending physician after he abruptly froze mid-speech for a second time in as many as two months. In case you missed it, here's that tense moment. Running for re-election in 2026. Oh. That's right. Did you hear the question, Senator? Running for re-election in 2026? Yes. All right, I'm sorry, you all. We're going to need a minute. Senator. Penny. After examining the 81-year-old senator yesterday, the Capitol's doctor gave him the green light to return to work, writing, quote, occasional lightheadedness is not uncommon in concussion recovery and can also be expected as a result of dehydration. President Biden was asked again about the incident at the White House yesterday. Let's watch. I spoke to Mitch. He's a friend. Uh, um, and I, uh, I, I spoke to him uh, uh, today. Uh, and... Uh, you know, uh, he was his old self on the telephone. Uh, and uh, having um, a little understanding of uh, dealing with uh, neurosurgeons and people, and one of the leading women in my staff, her husband's a neurosurgeon as well, it's not un at all unusual to have the response that sometimes happens to Mitch when you've had a severe concussion. It's part of, a, it's part of the recovery. And so I'm confident he's going to be back to his old self. McConnell, however, found less sympathy from 2024 hopeful Nikki Haley, who said this on the matter. What I will say is right now the Senate is the most privileged nursing home in the country. I mean, you know, Mitch McConnell has done some great things and he deserves credit, but you have to know when to leave. That is why I'm strongly in support of term limits in this country. I think that we do need mental competency tests for anyone over the age of 75. I, don't, I wouldn't care if they did them over the age of 50, but these are people making decisions on our national security. They're making decisions on our economy, on the border. We need to know they're at the top of their game. You, you can't say that right now looking at Congress. I just have the question of if this was the resident physician at some kind of warehouse or facility where McConnell was responsible for operating a forklift, would he be medically cleared to go back to work? He probably wouldn't. You can't freeze up like that when you're on a forklift. Maybe we should have just as high standards for members who serve in the U.S. Senate. I think Nikki Haley makes some good points there. You have to make very important decisions, and there might not be immediate and physical ramifications as if he were a regular blue-collar worker. There are still very big implications of the minority leader freezing up every now and again at work. I think maybe our standards should be just as high for members of Congress. Exactly. This moment, I don't buy that this is just the result of the post-concussive syndrome that they're talking about here. His fall was all the way back in April, and 
if this if it is the case that his concussion was that severe, then there needs to be an explanation for that as well, because the severity of this fall was really kind of brushed off by Mitch McConnell's team back when it happened. It was at the Waldorf Astoria Hotel in D.C. during a fundraising dinner. And uh, because it was a private event, I think people maybe didn't realize how bad it was. But if he's still having these side effects, then clearly this was more intense, more severe than we were initially told. And Republicans have to have consistent standards across the board. I mean, we've been criticizing Dianne Feinstein. We've been criticizing Joe Biden for showing their own cognitive deficiencies. If Mitch McConnell is going to stand up in two separate press conferences and have these moments where he's completely frozen in one, his staff actually has to take him away from the, moment, the microphone, then that's equally as, as much of a problem as it is on the Democratic side. We shouldn't have to have their staff or handlers, handlers shepherding them like sheep uh, when they get on the mic and they freeze up during a press conference. It's such a ridiculous sight. You could tell the panic in his aide's eyes. She had no idea what to do in that moment. She was like looking around for help. I don't think that's a normal consequence of a concussion. I have been concussed before. I was a college athlete. I've been around people who have been concussed. Very different reality, maybe because we were not 81 years old. We we're in our early 20s. But I think that speaks to what Nikki Haley was speaking to, which is not only term limits, but some kind of cognitive test is a policy she's supported for quite some time. It's not just a part of her presidential policy platform. And I think it's necessary. If you wouldn't want the president of the United States or a member of Congress to run a hospital you would receive care in because they're old enough that you don't trust them to make decisions or you don't believe they would make the right decisions. That should be a, a, a good mental game you play when you decide whether or not this person should be in public office. Do you trust them to do the requirements of the job on a day-to-day -day basis? And I think many people would look at McConnell, they would look at Joe Biden, and they would look at Dianne Feinstein and they would say, absolutely not. I would not want to be driving in the lane next to them on the highway. And so I think I think Nikki Haley is really onto something with this. And I would like to see more folks that are currently serving in political positions in the United States and elected political positions saying that they support term limits and they support cognitive tests or some kind of age limit that can be adjusted according to how much we're able to increase uh, the expected lifespan in the United States and the working years in the United States with medical advancements. I think that's a fair policy to pass. I hear what you're saying on this concussion point, too. I've never heard of this specific type of response being the result of a concussion. That statement mentions lightheadedness is common, but that's not what we're seeing here. I mean, it's true that lightheadedness is associated with concussions, but I'm not sure how that's relevant to what we saw from Mitch McConnell. And back when he had that fall in April, the Spectator reported that some of his colleagues, such as John Thune and uh, Barrasso, were actually having lunch meetings with fellow senators trying to shore up support for what they believed was going to be a pending leadership battle. So they clearly knew that something was up all the way back in April. Um, but it was after that report that Mitch McConnell quickly returned to the Senate and uh, sent the message that he wasn't going anywhere. Well, now we're it's at the point 
where Kentucky is in the middle of this governor race between Daniel Cameron and the incumbent Andy Bashir. And the way that Kentucky chooses uh, replacement senators in the case of a resignation or, or some other vacancy is a little bit different than most states. The governor doesn't just get to pick. However, what happens is the senator who's leaving the party gets to offer three potential replacements, and the governor picks one of those. However, Kentucky Democrats have basically uh, stated that they want Andy Bashir to challenge the law and to appoint his own replacement that's not from the Republican Party and dare the Republicans to sue. So it's possible that Mitch McConnell is trying to wait out this election in the hopes that Daniel Cameron, the Republican, takes the seat and then they don't have to worry about any of that. But uh, th that's just another example of how so many of these older politicians try to hang on to power for as long as they possibly can, in this case of Mitch McConnell. Also, with Dianne Feinstein, the Democrats trying to get a temporary replacement for her on the Judiciary Committee, um, the Democrats not wanting Kamala Harris to take over for Joe Biden, and then in the case of John Fetterman in Pennsylvania, um, where they didn't have him drop out of the race for a potentially um, more or less establishment candidate after he had that stroke and was in recovery. I'm glad we're getting into a little bit of the local Kentucky politics because Mitch McConnell is kind of entrenched in them. When I think about how Joe Biden is defending Mitch McConnell's current cognitive state, his health, it's like you guys sound like you're on the same team. And what team is that? Is it just the establishment in general? Is it old white guys trying to stay in office for as long as possible despite their obvious cognitive decline? And I think it's really establishment same team kind of politics because I think about the outrage just a year ago when the abortion issue was at the forefront of everyone's minds, especially uh, in the Democratic Party. And Joe Biden decided, OK, I'm going to nominate Chad Meredith, an anti-abortion lawyer, uh, to a judge position to become a federal judge in Kentucky. A lot of folks speculated, was there some kind of trade with Mitch McConnell as to whether or not Republicans uh, would block appointed positions when uh, Joe Biden would potentially have to appoint a Supreme Court judge, that there was some kind of trade happening between the two. After there was a lot of outrage, he deserted those plans, but it seems pretty obvious that if no one was paying attention, it would have been Chad Meredith who was appointed, which I think just speaks to the establishment handpicking who they want in these judge positions. It speaks to how much the establishment works together. To see Joe Biden defend Mitch McConnell, I don't think we would see Donald Trump defend uh, the minority leader if they were a Democrat in some way. I really just don't see it. It's, it really, I think, speaks to how much the establishment works together and expects that from one another. Yeah, I think that's right. And you know what? I, I think Trump probably wouldn't even defend McConnell in this position. I mean, it, I guess it depends on the circumstance. He definitely was a big fan of uh, McConnell getting the judges through. But on a lot of other issues, those two are not the best of friends. But I agree. That statement from Joe Biden kind of said it all. We'll be back with more Rising after this. Proud Boys member Zachary Rell was sentenced to 15 years in prison yesterday after being convicted of leading an inflamed mob toward the Capitol on January 6, 2021, in an attempt to bar the certification of the 2020 election, The Hill reports. 
Rell, who was the former Philadelphia Proud Boys chapter president, said he let politics consume his life and it caused him to, quote, lose track of who and what mattered most. He called January 6th a despicable day, adding, I'm done with politics, done with peddling likes for lies for other people who don't care about me. Proud Boys member Joe Biggs, who helped lead the group's march on the Capitol, was also handed a lengthy sentence yesterday, 17 years in federal prison. He was convicted of seditious conspiracy for his role in January 6th. So interesting times. Folks are finally getting convicted for what they did uh, on January 6th. It's taken a while for these cases uh, to get processed, for them to make it through the courts and finally get to the, the point of sentencing. Uh, and I think it just speaks to the lengthy nature of our judicial process in general. I think they deliberately collected a bunch of evidence to make sure they could get this seditious conspiracy charge. Uh, getting inciting an insurrection as a charge is something that I've heard lawyers describe time and again as something that's very difficult to do. But I also believe that there hasn't been anything as big as January 6th occur in our country for quite some time. Was this an insurrection? I think that's a big question people have. But I know many folks are pleased that this is a seditious conspiracy charge, that they're getting this amount of time. And it sounds like, based off of what they're saying, they don't plan on getting out in 17 or so years and trying this again. It sounds like these guys are pretty done with politics. I think that these sentences are fairly ridiculous. I think they're way overinflated. First of all, the judge only ended up sentencing them to about half of what the prosecution wanted on these seditious conspiracy charges. And I don't know as much about the case of Zachary Rell. I believe that he actually did behave violently. He apparently pepper sprayed some cops, in which case he deserves a harsher sentence than Joe Biggs. But the Joe Biggs case, I think, is frankly ridiculous. The only thing that Joe Biggs did on the day of January 6 was he marched with people to the Capitol. He supposedly entered after other people had broken down the barriers and was inside for 20 minutes walking around and then left. The only reason that they were able to apparently enhance these charges to the terrorism level was because he was on camera shaking a bike fence that happened to be declared a government facility. Um, when you compare the sentencing in these cases to other violent crimes where people have received far less time, you have rapists getting less time, murderers getting less time. You have uh, the case of someone out of, out of Washington who was on Instagram making threats towards the former president and his administration officials pointing a gun at the TV of, of Jared Kushner only getting, uh, uh, let's see how many years he got, um, just a couple of years compared to 17 and 15. You had the individual who burned down a police station in Minneapolis collecting armor and weapons out of that police station, getting 41 months in prison. You have Anthony Weiner sexting a minor and getting 21 months. The person who assaulted Rand Paul in his yard got nine months. So I don't think these sentences are appropriate at all. I think it's kind of stunning that, uh, that Joe Biggs was charged in the first place. Again, I understand the Zachary Rell case a little bit more, but it seems like the only way that they're upgrading these to terrorism is because these people were mouthing off to friends over text messages about wanting to overthrow the government, which is obviously something you shouldn't say in your text messages. It's, it's unbelievably stupid. But 
based on the actions that these people took that day, it's clear that they didn't actually mean the things that they were saying. It's clear that they did not have a plan to actually act on that. This was, I think, a protest that got out of control. This was not an insurrection. It sounds to me that the reason Biggs got this charge was because he was encouraging folks leading up to January 6th to, quote, get radical and get real men. Uh, only hours after Donald Trump had announced plans for the rally to happen in Washington that uh, that day of certification. Then you also have Biggs playing a major role in breaching the law enforcement line and leading folks into the building. I think that's why he got a, a larger charge and then charge. And then afterwards in podcasts, he kind of gloated about what they had done on January 6th. He called the attack a, quote, warning shot to the government that showed them, quote, how weak they truly are. So it seems to me that what Biggs did that day was premeditated, I think, breaching that line to law enforcement and leading people into the building to break into the, the congressional building was a big part of this. And then afterwards to gloat about it. I think that's why we see Biggs getting this, this really hefty charge. I think it's a problem in general that we see such disparities in the way certain crimes are charged. You know, we see people charged for marijuana in one state getting far more years than someone committing a violent crime against someone else in another state. I think we've got to do something to really level out sentencing and have better standards. It shouldn't be rolling the dice. Depending on what judge you get, your, your fate will be determined in the eyes of the law. You might get a huge, hefty sentence with one judge, whereas if you got another judge, you would pretty much just be out on parole. It's insane how much discretion judges have, and I think there needs to be something done to really level out sentencing in the country. But it sounds to me like, like Biggs played a major role in what went down on January 6th and really escalating the situation from a protest to really a riot to an attempted insurrection when you have this this idea of, you know, we've got to get radical, then breaching law enforcement, and then afterwards saying, yeah, it was an attack, and it shows how weak our government is. Well, it says that he breached law enforcement lines, but it never says that he be, uh, behaved in a way that was violent or that he actually pushed any of the police officers. He just happened to be in that first wave of people that went through. And actually, what's interesting about the judge's uh, sentencing is that uh, they say that um, the the fact that Joe Biggs is a is a military veteran actually works against him here because they believe that he should have been responsible for stopping the other people from entering, which I think is a kind of ridiculous standard. Like if you don't stop somebody else from committing a crime, then you also committed the crime. Um, I don't I don't know how that plays into the sentencing at all. I think that's pretty ridiculous. Um, and, and again, for this double standard, I think this matters because you have an individual, Ray Epps, who was present um, the night before and on the day, January 6th, yelling at people to go inside, encouraging them to be violent. He was not only not charged by the government, but not even picked up, apparently, not even spoken to. The government has refused to tell us whether or not he is uh, an informant, whether or not he was working on behalf of the FBI. We know that there were multiple FBI agents, according to a recent interview with the former uh, Capitol chief of police, who was in uh, his position on that day. He said that not only were there tons of FBI agents involved in this, but he was never told that they were going to be there, so he had no idea which individuals that were uh, causing trouble that day were doing so on behalf of the government or if they were private citizens. And uh, he, didn't, he didn't 
wasn't told, again, how many there were. Um, so all of this across the board, I think, really um, provides uh, a, a, some, I guess, it doesn't help explain why 17 years is appropriate. In fact, it does the opposite. I think it shows that this is treated incredibly differently from very similar situations. If we look at the summer of 2020 with the riots that took place from members of Antifa in response to the death of George Floyd, you had very similar language coming out of those groups where they talked about wanting to strike fear into government officials so that they would act in a certain way. If that's terrorism when it's done by the Proud Boys, then it should be considered terrorism when it's done by Antifa. Um, um, as you said, the language matters here. And so this double standard, I think, is, is just unbelievable. I don't see how there's um, a reasonable explanation for the 17 and 15 year sentences. I really don't see those two things as, as something that could be equated. It's very apples to oranges or, or apples to Snickers bars, just like so far off. I think. How do you figure uh, though? Because what Antifa, right, um, I mean, you have two situations where in the case of the Proud Boys, you say that they were talking about getting radical. We have communications between Antifa members who were talking about wanting to put pressure or intimidate the government so that they would make policy changes related to quote-unquote police brutality. And then you have two situations, one where there was a breach of a capital, and then in the 2020 riots, there were also breaches of state capitals that happened repeatedly. There were breaches of police stations. So how are those two situations not comparable? So what went down on January 6th is very different from the summer of 2020 for several reasons. George Floyd was just the most recent case of police violence against an unarmed black man. When I think back to the centuries of slavery we had in the United States and how people who were African, who were brought to the United States, people who were black in America were treated, they were used as slaves. Then they had to face years of Jim Crow, years of refusal for them to be integrated into society or the formal economy, then being brutalized by slave patrol, which is the first iteration of modern day police, and then to endure trying to integrate into society when it's segregated through you know, channels of the law, through peaceful methods, then protesting so that they could be seen equally in the eyes of the law. Still, they don't have the same economic opportunities that people who are white in the United States have. And then to face constant brutalization from the police, to face the potential of just being murdered by the police for being pulled over. The countless times that the police have uh, brutalized unarmed black men is what led to what went down in the summer of 2020. It was the voice of the unheard. When you go to city council meetings and you try and explain that you are so afraid to go outside because you're afraid that the police could kill you and they don't listen to you and they kick you out for screaming. That happened in LA countless times. You have no other option. That's why I think Martin Luther King Jr. said that the riot is the voice of the unheard. So it was a response to a murder. What happened on January 6th was a group of folks who were unhappy with the results of the election. Were they misled by some public officials who said that the election was stolen, that the results were not legitimate? Yeah, they were misled. Uh, should, should we take that into consideration when we think about Joe Biggs, who himself said you know, that, that he didn't want to be considered a terrorist. He was seduced by the crowd and he moved forward and quote, his curiosity got the better of me and I have to live with that for the rest of my life and I'm sorry. Yeah, yeah, this was a group of people who was maybe misled and we should consider that and we should consider some kind of form of justice where 
what's the best way forward to prevent this from happening again, not just to give them a slap on the wrist and lock them behind bars, but to equate these two things as the same? I just really don't see them as the same. To try and overturn an election that was fairly won by Joe Biden is something very different from fighting against centuries of oppression. I mean, the only difference in your mind is that you agree with one of the reasons for rioting politically and the other one you don't. No. What do you mean, no? You support, you support the George Floyd riots because you think that they have a justified reason to do so. You don't support the Capitol riot because you don't agree with the justification from the people who did it, but they behaved in the same manner. This is why we yeah, have an I unequal think... standard of justice. This is why we have sentencing disparities, because there's politicization of the justice system because of whether or not you agree with a person's actions based on the reason that they did it. I think that my personal decision is not why I think one is more justified than the other. It's the reasons of the people rioting is why I think that it's justified for people to stand up and say, hey, we've been brutalized by the police for long enough and we're sick of it. And our social contract has been broken in this country. I think the reason for folks showing up on January 6 was because you know, they believed they wanted to overturn the election and had the entitlement to do that. I think their own reasons were bad reasons to be rioting and trying to commit acts of violence and break into Congress. The justice system is not supposed to determine whether or not your actions are lawful or unlawful based on whether or not they agree with your justification for committing them. And in the case of January 6th, you said that the George Floyd rioters were the riots of the unheard. These people felt unheard. They truly believed in many cases that the election was stolen. They truly believed in many cases that the election was rigged, that the votes were not counted properly, that there were votes that were certified that shouldn't have been. And frankly, given the fact that due to the pandemic, there were so many laws changed in regards to how elections are run shortly before the election. I think they have a fair case to say that the election was rigged. Do I think it was stolen and that machines changed votes? That's a different question. No, I don't believe that. Um, but again, the law should not be deciding whether or not someone's explanation for the law that they broke is acceptable to them. That's not how we determine justice in this country. Whether you murder someone because you think they're a bad guy or you murder someone um, who everyone else says is good. That doesn't change the fact that you've committed a murder. Yeah, I think it's a very different scenario to try and break into the Capitol and to say things like you want to kill AOC and Nancy Pelosi. I think that's a very different agenda from the agenda of the folks who are protesting in the summer of 2020 after the murder of George Floyd. It's just very different in nature to try and go in and stop a democratic process versus to try and show up in the streets and demonstrate. Those just two things are not comparable. Well, the George Floyd rioters did try to stop democratic processes. They did enter state capitals and police stations on multiple occasions in order to prevent the, uh, the normal processes of government. But unfortunately, we're out of time. We'll be back with more Rising after this. press briefing about the Maui wildfires recovery effort, President Biden once again recounted a story about his 2004 house fire. I didn't know anything like that, but I lightly struck my house. We had to be out of that house for about seven months while it was repaired because so much damage was done to the house and half the house almost collapsed. 
While visiting the FEMA headquarters yesterday to thank emergency personnel who helped in the response to the Maui wildfires and Florida, Biden announced he will travel to Florida tomorrow morning, days after Hurricane Adalia hit western Florida. However, the visit may do little to take attention away from the federal government's Maui response. Here's a scene from the White House press briefing room earlier this week. Given the cost of living in Hawaii, specifically in the Lahaina community, is anything being done right now? Are there considerations or efforts being made to try to raise that cap, that $700 figure for those who are there? Yeah, the $700 figure of critical needs assistance is really just that amount of funding for some of the very immediate needs um, that individuals have. Uh, every year, the, the main part of our assistance, which is our individual and household program, adjusts annually based on inflation. This year, it's $41,000 of a cap that individuals can get. Uh, that will get raised after the um, fiscal year. I, I don't know what that number is yet, but we do adjust that main portion of the funding that goes to individuals annually based on inflation. Later, Press Secretary Corinne Jean-Pierre again faced another grilling by Ducey. Okay, and it seems like the hurricane response so far is robust. Did you guys realize that the initial Hawaii wildfire response was not that good? Or is it just easier for people to get help from the White House when the president is not on vacation? So the premise of your question and the way you posed your question, I disagree, just for the record. Uh, so if you talk to, if you were to do your reporting and speak to the governor of Hawaii, the senators uh, of Hawaii, the folks on the ground, they would say that the president reacted in record time when it came to dealing with the wildfires, uh, when it came to dealing and making sure that they got everything that they need on the federal level to deal with what was going on on the ground. Let's not forget there were more than 600 uh, uh, federal employees on the ground already to assist uh, with the wildfires in Maui. So your question is, is wrong, it's flawed in many, many ways. Yeah, so Ducey always asks tough questions. I don't know that I necessarily disagree with him putting pressure on the White House for doing more for the folks in Maui. I will say I understand it's the, the governor's job to request the federal aid, and I think the governor did a really bad job in Hawaii in asking for the aid. Josh Green should have uh, been a little bit more proactive. The folks responsible for sounding the alarm should have been mo more proactive. We know they stepped down. But I also think the Biden administration, it's a cop out for them to say we've maxed out the amount of aid we can give with that $700. We know there are many sources for federal aid, especially in the case of emergencies. For example, you can get millions of dollars from HUD. In fact, it was just about 30% of the recovery funds and response funds for Sandy that came from FEMA. So it's just such a cop-out to say we've given the max we can give right now with that $700. They can call on Congress to authorize more aid to Hawaii. There's a lot of things they can do. And so while the question didn't take into consideration the whole picture, when you still take into consideration the whole picture, the Biden admin could be doing a lot more. Uh, to help with the recovery and rebuilding of Hawaii. I think it's a cop-out, too, to say, oh, well, go talk to the governor, go talk to the senators, who, again, were partially responsible for the horrible response to this. Of course, they're not going to turn around and criticize President Joe Biden, but uh, there have been tons of reporters in uh, Maui who are actually speaking to people on the ground, uh, actual citizens there, and they're not happy with how the government has been treating them. And even just outside of the federal official response in terms of the emergency response, 
Joe Biden, when he was first asked about this wildfire, was vacationing on a beach in Rehoboth and said with a, uh, he gave a flippant no comment, like he didn't even care to offer sympathy to the people who had lost everything, including their lives. Then, on his way to Hawaii, he decided to make a stopover at a billionaire's house in Lake Tahoe, where the White House insists that he's paying market rent, which I'm sure nobody believes. It's a house of Democrat billionaire donor Tom Steyer, who previously ran for president. So he stops there at the this, at this huge mansion, then goes over to Maui, kind of bumbles around the island for a day, and then goes right back to his vacation. So it's not even just the amount of money that's given or the amount of aid, but even just the fact that he couldn't muster up a little more sympathy, a little bit more leadership in a time where the American people really needed it. I would like to imagine that uh, the Biden administration is in such dire straits that they needed to stop over at Tom Steyer's house for some messaging advice on how to handle <laughs> the whole disaster, that they're that desperate, that that's why they're at Steyer's house. Uh, we know how his political campaign went. Uh, and we also know how Hawaii is going. For Biden to bring up a small fire when asked about what went down in Hawaii, which we know was the culmination of many decades, if not centuries, of mismanagement of land and resources on the island. It's just ridiculous um, to say that that's some source of, of empathy for him or sympathy for him. It's absurd. There's a lot more the federal government can be doing right now. And I think it's dangerous when we get into a place, and I've seen a lot of Democrats do this, defending Biden, saying to leftists who are calling for more aid that it's a right-wing talking point to say that $700 is not enough and he did all he could by by giving that $700. No, absolutely not. There's a million things more he could be doing. He could have visited earlier. He could have decided, all right, vacation ends here. It turns out there's a disaster in the country that I am the leader of. Like we are giving him so much slack, Democrats especially. And when you think about the kind of country you want to live in, a lot of Democrats say they're very compassionate, they believe in you know, good disaster response, taking care of people, et cetera, and they would hold someone like George Bush accountable for disaster response failures, but not Joe Biden. I really think we need to have a higher standard for someone who's in the highest public office, who can much more easily access emergency funds than anyone else in the country, than Congress, than the governors and the folks there in Hawaii. He can mobilize resources a lot faster. And by saying, well, we need Congress to authorize that money, we absolutely don't. It's been done before in the past and other responses to hurricanes like Sandy. And so it's, it's just an absolute... Uh, just mismanagement of our political rhetoric to say, oh, we're making excuses for Joe Biden. He was justifies, justified in only authorizing that amount of money because technically it's all he, he can. He was on vacation. There is so much more he could do, and we should just have a higher standard for those serving in public office. Yeah, and on a more local level, in addition to the decades of land mismanagement that you mentioned, there is also just blatant incompetence within the Hawaii government and the uh, the emergency response. You had two completely unqualified individuals running the emergency response system, and then another individual who was in charge of getting water to these folks as the f wildfires broke out. He apparently delayed doing so. Um, he's previously said that water needs to be equitable, whatever that means, um, if that means withholding it from people who are in the midst of a wildfire because farmers need it. That seems like a pretty ridiculous explanation. So I think there needs to be some kind of 
of investigation into how these people got appointed and how I believe the, the water management uh, expert, supposedly, is still in his role. Um, the, the other individual who was in uh, charge of emergency response resigned supposedly for health reasons. So. I guess he still gets to collect his pension or whatever as the people of Maui suffer. And then on this question of Biden's house fire that he keeps bringing up in response to this, he's not only displaying this, this fake sense of empathy, but he's also lying about the circumstances of the fire. It turns out that it was a small kitchen fire that was put out in about 20 minutes, yet he's claimed in various stories throughout the years that firefighters almost died fighting the fire, that he almost lost his wife and his Camaro and that his house practically burned down, this complete escalation and exaggeration of what actually happened. And this seems to be a common theme for Joe Biden. The media constantly painted him as the so-called uh, empath in chief. They said that he was going to be the nation's therapist. And then he gets in office and he goes and talks to Gold Star families who lost their kids during that suicide bombing in Kabul. And his response to them is to say that he also brought his son, Beau Biden, home in a flag-draped casket, which is an abject lie. His son died of brain cancer years later. Still tragic, obviously, but not at all comparable to what these families went through. Um, some of the, the individuals from uh, Afghanistan, from the Kabul airport, who were injured in that suicide blast, also say that the first thing that he said to them was to bring up Bo Biden, as opposed to asking them how they're doing or offering them some assistance. So there's this common theme over and over again, where the president tries to make other people's grief and struggles about himself, and it comes across as so tone deaf. And um, I just feel when people are grieving, the last thing they want to hear is, I understand what you're going through, or I know what you're going through. And the fact that no one on Joe Biden's team has steered him away from that response yet is an abject failure on their part, too. Yeah, I think it's a really good point. It's especially egregious in cases of grief of Joe Biden trying to say, I have a story that is exactly the same as yours. Joe Biden, on a regular basis, tells stories to the American public like a parent telling a fairy tale to their child before they go to sleep. They come up with new details, new embellishments based on the reaction of their child. Joe Biden does the same thing when he's giving a speech in the US. If he's getting a bigger reaction, he's gonna keep embellishing the story. It's absolutely absurd. I think in the case of Hawaii and the fires, we're left in a, a worse scenario because of the lack of messaging and response from the Biden administration. There is a very popular conspiracy theory on the internet that the wealthy folks who have bought a lot of property on Maui have all painted their rooftops blue and that's something that's very common with people who have homes in tropical climates. But the conspiracy is that they've done this because there are these electromagnetic lasers, and that is actually what caused the fire, and the blue is immune to the lasers. Now, the fact that people are so skeptical of the elites in this country that they will take to this theory, and it's so popular on the internet because it's getting clicks and it's getting traction, because it is believable because people are that skeptical of the elites in the United States of America. Now, there's something at the heart of this, definitely don't believe in this conspiracy theory, but why is it the case that the billionaires in our country are able to buy up property and land on Maui when locals are struggling to just have clean water, right? That's the real problem. Why is the land so dry and so poorly managed that it burns so easily when there is a spark? 
That is the real conspiracy. And it's because Hawaii, as specifically Maui, has been decimated by corporate farming, the short-term incentives of multinational corporations coming in with these cash crops like sugar, turning Hawaii into a place to pump out these low-cost crops for the local economy so that they can go and make money off of the island overseas. And they've really pushed out the locals. And then the parts of Hawaii that are very beautiful and nice to live on, we have people like Oprah Winfrey having their vacation homes there. That's the real conspiracy. We know who we should be mad at. It's very obvious to me. And so I think moving forward in the case of Hawaii, we have to pay very close attention that we don't repeat history there. And it's not BlackRock going in and buying the land because it's cheap and developing it and selling it for short-term gains over the next 10 to 15 years. We have to be sure that the recovery is relevant to the folks who live on the island. And if we see folks in public office just ignoring what's going on in Hawaii, they're going to end up worse off than they even were before the blaze. This happens a lot in the Midwest, too, where these large corporate uh, agricultural firms are given massive government subsidies to put in these cash crops. And then the government pays them not to farm in the future so that the land can allegedly regrow. But it actually ends up drying out the soil and leading to all kinds of environmental disaster. We'll be back with more Rising after this. Could the Biden administration be posturing to decriminalize cannabis? The Department of Health and Human Services is recommending the DEA significantly loosen federal restrictions on marijuana by demoting it from a Schedule 1 to a Schedule 3 drug. Notably, the administration did not advise cannabis be entirely removed from the Controlled Substances Act, Politico reports. As a Schedule One drug, cannabis is currently grouped with recreational drugs like heroin, MDMA, LSD, and bath salts. When asked about the drug review process, White House Press Secretary Karine Jean-Pierre told reporters we're just not going to comment on that. Joining us now to break down what this would mean for the larger movement for decriminalization of drugs and drug sentencing reform is Executive Director of Drug Policy Alliance, Cassandra Frederick. Cassandra, welcome to Rising. Thanks for joining us. Thanks for having me. So why do you think the Biden administration declined to comment on this after this report from Politico? Karine Jean-Pierre's statement was uh, was pretty final there. I can't begin to imagine what the Biden administration is thinking. But I think what we do know is that this is a conversation that's going to keep coming up as a majority of Americans believe that drug criminalization isn't an effective way to deal with drugs. And so the Biden administration should continue to prepare to continue to ask, answer, get an answer for this question because we see that drug possession arrests are the number one arrests in the country. We know that possession arrests also um, really, because of possession criminalization, it really hampers people's ability to get access to healthcare and supports for addiction. And as we know, the conversation about the reform of cannabis policy uh, is important, but it's not the full part of the conversation. And I think Americans are really pushing for us to have a more comprehensive conversation about decriminalization and drugs in this country. So I, I predict uh, that the press secretary will be asked this question um, as the Biden administration continues to look towards reforms. 
So it seems that about 88% of adults in the United States say marijuana should be legal for medical or recreational use. It's still the majority that believe it should be legal for recreational use. Let's get down to brass tacks here. Is marijuana as bad as the other scheduled drugs? Is it as bad as the other drugs that are criminalized in the United States? What are your thoughts? I find that I find that that conversation is not helpful. I think one of the things for us around cannabis is that it is the drug that most Americans use or admit to using. Um, over 100 million people talk about their use of cannabis. I think the conversation that we've had around how we've used the scheduling and the criminalization around cannabis, a lot of those conversations are the same kinds of conversations we can have about the usefulness and the feasibility and the viability of using criminalization as a tool to deal with other drugs. Now, cannabis is more mainstream, more people have experiences with it. And so I think that's part of the reason why you see it leading the conversation on drug policy reform. But I think the dichotomy of a good or bad drug really it really confuses the conversation about what is the appropriate way to deal with drugs in our society. I've heard the argument before that uh, marijuana needs to be decriminalized or given a lower classification so that it can be studied more thoroughly. We have seen some research come out in the past couple of years. Just yesterday, uh, Columbia University dropped a study finding that um, habitual marijuana users have higher levels of lead and cadmium in their blood. There's been other research that suggests that it can induce psychosis in people who have dormant mental illnesses. So I'm just curious, if they were to change this from a Schedule One to a Schedule Three drug, would we be able to see more research, more studies being done on the potential negative side effects of it? I think so. I think so much of our conversation and the knowledge that is often pushed about the detrimental impacts of cannabis are based in junk science. I think we've used junk science for a really long time to push political motivations around drug criminalization. I think with the schedule, with moving cannabis to schedule three, it does open up more research opportunities. And I think one of the things that is really important for us and we try to keep people to understand is that the research that we have oftentimes is very limited in scope and it's not speaking to regulated cannabis, right? So part of the reason why people push for the regulation of cannabis is that we know what's in it, that we create health infrastructure around what kind of cannabis goes in, what are the um, substances that we can do, what is the potency, that's all conversations for regulation. And until we have that, it's really difficult for us to really look at the research um, and see um, based on the methodology because so many of the samples that people are using are, are sometimes, they're, they're not easy to be compared. I want to talk a little bit about how this is a, a racial justice issue. So 62% uh, of those admitted to state prison for drug offenses are Black. That is an insane proportion considering the, the population and the breakdown racially in the United States. Now, we've talked about how marijuana is a drug that's used by, by pretty much everyone in the United States. So how the law is applied is just as important as what the law is, because it seems that this law is used disproportionately to put Black Americans in jail. So when we consider you know, the way that the law is applied, 
Does that suggest that maybe we should reconsider having this law at the federal level at all? Could that be a motivation of the Biden administration here that while this law exists, it's not applied evenly and maybe it could be argued very well that it's used as a tool in racial policing? I think one of the most important things about us studying what the Biden administration is doing right now is the Biden administration has admitted that there was disproportionate enforcement of drug policies. Um, it's no secret. It's very clear. And the Biden administration, even during his campaign when he was candidate Biden, talked about the racial implications of the drug war and the way that drug criminalization disproportionately impacts certain groups of people, in particularly Black Americans. While cannabis is used um, as a way to criminalize groups of people, we cannot divorce the conversation of drug policy and policing because it is policing that and their targeted enforcement that is creating the racial disparities into these places. Because as we said earlier, most people that are using cannabis in this country um, goes across racial lines. There are a lot of white folks that are using cannabis um, that are not facing the same kind of policing in their neighborhoods. And so the Biden administration has rightfully couched a lot of their cannabis reform conversation as a means of dealing with criminal justice reform and racial equity. Um, but unfortunately, this decision right now around uh, rescheduling as opposed to descheduling cannabis um, is woefully inadequate to deal with the comprehensive nature of the racist history of cannabis enforcement in this country. Is there any effect that the reclassification of cannabis might have on the commercial industry? We've seen more states um, decriminalizing marijuana that's a booming industry in both Colorado and Washington State and Washington, D.C. How would this potentially affect those industries? So I think there are a lot of questions that are still up in the air. Most notably, what we do know, we feel safe to predict now is that with the rescheduling of cannabis, businesses will be able to make uh, regular business tax deductions. Um, but the industry is still at risk because cannabis is still illegal federally. Um, and what we also know and it has been important to advocates as well as been a talking point of the Biden administration is the need for a fair playing field um, for smaller businesses. And a rescheduling does not um, necessarily create the conditions for a fair playing field um, for smaller businesses. So I want to turn to maybe what we could do moving forward policy-wise. Are there any recommendations to make sure that when the drug is decriminalized, we don't see the continuation of the majority of places where you can go brick and mortar and purchase marijuana being white owned? I think it's a part of you know restorative justice and reparations to some degree to ensure that those most affected by drug policies have the opportunity economically once it's decriminalized. Are there any recommendations your organization is working with or that you quite like policy-wise moving forward to make sure this goes smoothly? So I just want to make sure that we emphasize for your uh, viewers that the, what the Biden administration um, is proposing does not decriminalize cannabis. Uh, but in a future world where we're having a conversation about the comprehensive decriminalization of cannabis, we are working with groups all across the country, small farmers, small business owners, criminal justice groups, economic justice groups, to really figure out in this moment where we are creating a new industry, how do we make sure that the industry regulations and rules 
lend itself to promoting fairness. And so there are groups like cannabis regulators of color, which are people that are admin who have been administrators in cannabis markets who are who have learned from what they've seen, like, hey, this actually doesn't work. Or Minority Cannabis Business Association is another organization doing this work. There are large national organizations like Marijuana Policy Project or Normal or my organization, Drug Policy Alliance. There is a national Federal, there is a federal coalition called the Marijuana Justice Coalition that is working on comprehensive uh, cannabis reform that includes making sure that the regulations that are put forward promote fairness and equitability or equity um, in building this new industry. All right, we're going to have to leave it there. Cassandra Frederick, thank you so much for joining us. We'll be back with more Rising after this. Thank you for having me. Over seven months since a controlled rail car burn sent toxic chemical plumes into the air in East Palestine, Ohio, chemical testing is showing dangerous levels of toxins still remain throughout the town. According to News Nation, independent testing expert Scott Smith told News Nation the total dioxins in a recent soil sample were present at 2.5 parts per billion. News Nation reporter Ritz McHugh, who has been on the ground reporting in East Palestine, traveled to a Missouri town where a similar disaster occurred 40 years ago, leaving the area a ghost town. Let's take a look. To put dioxin levels of 2.5 parts per billion in context, we traveled 630 miles away to Times Beach, Missouri. This is what used to be Times Beach. This is old Highway 66. Right here. This was a liquor store and a tavern. Marilyn Leisner was the last mayor of Times Beach. They told us on December 23rd, 1982, that if we were in our homes to leave and if we're, we were out not to come back. In the 1970s, the roads of Times Beach were sprayed with oil to contain the dust, but they were contaminated by dioxin. Ten years later, the EPA and the CDC found the dioxins in the soil there. Quote, of 255 samples, levels of dioxin in a few yards and in one home show levels greater than one part per billion and less than five parts per billion. The government permanently relocated every resident, bought all the properties after the CDC advised it was necessary because, quote, the hazard posed by dioxin contamination is a continuing threat to health of citizens in the community. News Nation reporter Ritz McHugh joins us now to discuss. Rich, thank you so much for joining us. Thanks for having me. So let's start with what are the potential health effects of this level of dioxin and why haven't these people been evacuated given this comparison that's been made to Times Beach? It's a good question. I'm not sure we actually know the health effects. We know that dioxins are carcinogens. They're some of the most carcinogenic compounds on the planet. There's there's many of them. So there's a, a scale of which ones are more harmful, but they are certainly, there, there's no safe level. That's what I've been told by experts. There's no safe level of dioxins to have in your home or your soil. The EPA set certain standards. Um, but this town has a, had, when I read that this town was evacuated with this similar range, one part per billion to five parts per billion. And then when this independent testing came back, showing that this woman, Shelby Walker's soil, tested at 2.5 parts per billion, it's all numbers, but when you actually compare those to Times Beach, it's the same. And so to me, it was shocking and to realize that there's this entire town sitting here, East Palestine, Ohio, and they still haven't even tested in these residents' homes or in their property. This is independent testing. The EPA 
won't test. You know, these these people are asking to have their homes and their soil tested, and they will not test. So it sounds like with the similar amount of dioxins being found in the soil in East Palestine, Ohio, to the Missouri town you visited, there might be a similar scenario necessary in the future where East Palestine is evacuated or the people are forced to relocate. Did any of the Missouri residents explain what that process was like? Well, it's very interesting. I don't want to be alarmist and say this is definitely the same scenario. I'm saying it's a possible scenario, and I think that's what everybody would also say. Um, uh, the Times Beach residents, you know, it's hard to find people who are still alive. The woman I spoke with, Marilyn Lesner, she was the last mayor. She said most of her family came down with illnesses. Many have since gone. The reporters that even covered it are now since deceased. And so th there is definitely a comparison. She herself said, look, this is if this if this is happening in East Palestine, these residents should should be evacuated. And that, that's what she's been watching this from from Times Beach, Missouri, um, and just ultimately concerned about it. It's very disturbing. It, it sounds like a similar health outcomes potentially to the first responders on 9-11. Rich, where is the government response here? Why is the EPA not going out and testing? Where is Transportation Secretary Pete Buttigieg? I mean, it seems like everyone has just forgotten about East Palestine. That's exactly right. And so here, here's where it currently stands. Uh, recently in July, Governor Mike DeWine of Ohio declared the area a disaster. It was right up into a deadline and he finally said, okay, this is a disaster area. So then it heads to President Biden's desk. That's where it currently stands. If President Biden were to sign an emergency declaration, that would bring in federal support, FEMA. But that hasn't happened yet and that's what the residents of East Palestine are begging for, literally begging for. They're saying, look, right now you have a town that is under the control of the villain here, which is which is Norfolk Southern, the train operator. And that shouldn't be. We shouldn't have to, to go to Norfolk Southern uh, for help. We should be able to go to FEMA. We should, be, we should be able to have our homes tested. Right now, the EPA will not test their homes because they're saying we've tested in 147 locations for dioxins around East Palestine. And those readings tell us they're fine. The townspeople are saying, look, they don't want to find this because once they find it, it's a massive problem that they're not going to be able to contain. And so you have this stalemate, and that's why they're begging for federal help, and they really, truly need it. Did the mayor describe any sort of lawsuits or financial compensation for the residents who were not only forced to leave, maybe financial compensation for property or assets or just the distress and cost of having to relocate or further down the line health costs? Absolutely. She said that there were lawsuits, many lawsuits, which is starting to happen with Ohio and Pennsylvania. Keep in mind, Pennsylvania, this is right on the border of Pennsylvania. The mayor of Times Beach said, look, the, the government ultimately came in and, and bought out these homes. Uh, the, the president at the time was Ronald Reagan, and he formed a task force uh, with the EPA and the CDC, and they came in and then just made it happen. That hasn't happened in East Palestine, but if that were to happen, there's a lot more homes in East Palestine and the area that would have to be bought out. And so that is probably a concern that they're weighing. Right now, Norfolk Southern is allegedly on the hook for this whole thing because it was their fault. But um, the residents here are saying, look, we can't wait till this, till this resolves itself in court and in lawsuits. We need help now. And we need the federal, we need FEMA to come in and help us. We need these people 
you know, they're, they're in their homes and they don't know if their homes are safe. They're being forced to go back in their homes after living for six months in hotels. And now they're, they're coming back and they're saying, look, my house smells. We have air monitors that, that say the readings are off the charts. They said the air quality is poor. We want our homes tested. Why can't we have our homes tested? Why can't we have our soil tested? This is basic common sense uh, way forward. Definitely. And I think it's important to remind viewers, too, that a lot of these people are, are working class. They can't afford to just relocate themselves for some indefinite period of time while they wait this out. Is there a potential cleanup process that could take place here? Or is this the kind of situation where you kind of just have to wait for the environment to heal itself? I don't when you're dealing with dioxins, I don't think they heal themselves. I think they actually compound and grow because wow. from what I've learned. I'm no scientist, but they they commingle and they 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 create new compounds. So the decision that was made in Times Beach was that these dioxins are here. Uh, we we can't solve this, and so we're closing up shop. Everybody has to get out, and it's it's a it's a veritable ghost town. The whole the roads are gone. The forest it's like a giant forest. You see where the the roads once were and they're crowded over by forest and you know Marilyn the mayor there we were walking along what was once these roads saying look you can still see some of the flowers here they were they were planted on people's homes and when everybody left like the flowers survived but everything else was bulldozed um so I don't think there's I, I think what needs to happen here if, if I'm if I'm understanding the experts and I'm understanding the desires of the residents more testing needs to be done more transparency needs to happen here like just for everybody to say here's the testing We've tested the, the you know 400 homes right next to the train derailment and beyond. Here are the results. Show everybody the results, and be transparent about it. And the, everybody says that's not happening. And from what I can tell, that's not happening. This is such an important story, not just for the country, but for folks in East Palestine, Ohio, as well. Thank you so much for reporting on it, Rick McHugh with News Nation. Thank you for having me. The Fulton County case against former President Donald Trump will be live streamed on YouTube. Thursday, the Fulton County Superior Court judge overseeing the case said the court will operate the stream. There will also be pool coverage for television, radio and photography. Georgia allows cameras during criminal proceedings as long as they are not a disruption. Yesterday, the former president entered a plea of not guilty in Georgia through a court filing. He is also asking the judge to sever his case from his co-defendants. According to his lawyer, Trump will not have sufficient time to prepare his case for trial by October 23rd, 2023. Enforcing that trial date would, quote, violate federal and state constitutional rights to a fair trial and due process of the law. Former Trump campaign lawyer Sidney Powell and pro-Trump lawyer Kenneth Cheesebro also want their trials severed from their co-defendants. Wednesday, they filed motions requesting the separation. So I think, Amber, this is, uh, I don't know, it makes sense to me. I get that it's a RICO charge, right? I get that when it's racketeering, you have co-defendants. But I think it does make sense when you consider the fact that, okay, cameras will be in there. They can cause disruptions. Obviously, Trump is a high-level figure. Does it make sense for his co-defendants to be tried within the same case? I'm not sure because we could reach a scenario where it's like, okay, Donald Trump was asking people to find votes uh, to, to bolster his chances of winning the election, to potentially overturn the election. And there could be folks who are just the receiver of those text messages who are found not guilty. I think the RICO charge and charging them all within the same case really complicates this 
when it comes to actually not just getting the the initial indictment, but actually when it comes to sentencing and having a jury decide on the verdict of the case. Yeah, I think that's right. I think the DA here got a little bit over her skis. And there's some strategy, I guess you could say, happening on the defense side. I think what's happening is that Sidney Powell and Kenneth Chesbro, um, they're invoking their right to a speedy trial. And they're trying to get this out of the way as quickly as possible, perhaps because they feel the case is not very strong against them. So if they can get this over with, um, maybe try to dampen the ability for these prosecutors to take their time, perhaps gathering more evidence, then they can also uh, have a playbook prepared for the former president because he'll have more time to prepare and he'll be able to watch these proceedings against his former co-defendants. He'll be able to see what the state brings up, the arguments that they're trying to make and prepare for them, uh, prepare for them in, a, in a better way. I'm also very sympathetic to Trump's argument that there's really not enough time for him to go through all of the materials. There's apparently 12 million documents in this case. Even uh, on CNN, there was a discussion just the other day between um, some of their legal correspondents, such as Ellie Honig and um, he was saying that he doesn't think that this is necessarily enough time. He said um, it's up to the defense lawyer to decide what matters to the defense. And I think they're cutting it pretty close to the line here with respect to Donald Trump's constitutional right to fully prepare. So they're kind of, uh, on the prosecution side, they're kind of stuck between a rock and a hard place because on the one hand, they have these individuals who want to move through this really quickly, um, which they, of course, have the constitutional right to do or, or uh, the right to do under Georgia law, certainly. And then you have someone who really wants to take their time and go through these documents very carefully and try to uh, make sure that they have this very robust defense prepared. And so they're basically operating with two different cases at this point, which really makes their job a lot more difficult. Yeah, I think also a, a complexity here is how many resources this is going to take for the state to process. That could be a reason why the prosecutor, the DA's office, decided to pursue RICO charges. 12 million documents is a lot to process. You're probably going to have to hire additional staff just to process the amount of evidence in this case. I think that's why they were initially considering a date in the spring. October 23rd is so soon. Can a, a team of 10 attorneys, can a team of 10 attorneys and 10 paralegals process 12 million pages of evidence? I'm sure that a significant portion of the evidence has been redacted because there are security concerns around a lot of this, but the relevant portions of evidence clearly need to be processed and read. So that makes sense to me that you can't be ready for a trial by the 23rd. What it means for all of this to be on camera is interesting. I think the general public wants to see what goes down in this case in Fulton County, Georgia. I think a lot of people will be glued to court TV watching this, glued to getting updates on what's going on in the trial. But it's also something Donald Trump wanted. So the theatrics that go down in a courtroom with Donald Trump when there are cameras and it's being live streamed, I think it's going to be a spectacle and there's no way it can't be distracting from the case. I'm not sure how long it's going to last there. Yeah, I, I can just imagine how many uh, YouTubers are going to, to get all kinds of great ad revenue from trying to analyze the case. Um, uh, we saw this in, in previous um, cases in not related to Trump, but in mm -hmm. some of the cases um, with the South Carolina Murdoch family, for example, 
that was live streamed and, and people have made all kinds of money and, and views um, um, analyzing those cases. There's also a quibble in this uh, case as well about whether or not invoking the right to a speedy trial negates the Georgia law that requires defendants to receive access to all of the evidence against them at least 10 days prior to trial. It also um, is being called into question by DA Willis whether or not they will now have to um, call witnesses whose statements were not provided to the state at least 10 days in advance of the trial. And she said that they can also not complain if they receive less than seven days notice of the trial date. And there's some case law that she cited um, to back up this assertion that the state doesn't have to provide everything 10 days prior. It's a little bit wishy-washy on whether or not she's citing that case properly. But I think at the very least, based on what I've read, it seems that it's not D.A. Willis's call as to whether or not that's the case. It's actually the judge who gets to decide whether or not that's a reasonable change to make in the case of invoking a speedy trial. So lots of interesting legal facets involved here that we'll, of course, be following. Meanwhile, Donald Trump may also have a bone to pick with former Fox host Tucker Carlson over an interview that he had with Barstool Sports owner Dave Portnoy. Let's take a look. Is Biden going to be the nominee? I don't know. I'm not a political person, but I feel like there's been a shift where internally maybe the Democrats don't think he can win and they're setting the stage to do somebody else. Uh, I think it's crazy if he's, I mean, to be honest, I think both Trump and Biden are too old. I, I think there should, I don't think he should be able to be that old and be president. Uh, but I think Trump certainly more aware I mean, I, I think Biden has got some serious dementia issues. Oh, like how that is the president, I don't know. And that's not a Democrat because I said about both. It's like uh, Mitch, Mitch, the guy who had the stroke doing the speech the other day. Mitch McConnell. Yeah, like what? How, how are these people running our country? During that conversation, Tucker also agreed that Donald Trump should have participated in the GOP debate. So it sounds like this was a very deep political conversation between Dave Portnoy and Tucker Carlson? I don't know if Tucker's scraping the bottom of the barrel for guess, but if I know one thing about Dave Portnoy, is he's gonna know more about Brianna Chicken Fry dating Zach Bryan than he is about Biden ultimately being the Democratic nominee. Uh, yeah, I'm not sure why Dave Portnoy is the one he's asking in this case. I don't know what's going on with the Tucker Carlson show there, but I think just focusing on uh, Donald Trump and Tucker Carlson's friendship, I think it's it's interesting to see Tucker Carlson do his own reporting on his own show and not have a clear alliance to supporting a political party or a particular political candidate. Yeah, and I mean, he never did. Even at Fox, he was pretty unshackled from the typical party line. Um, his show every night was vastly different, different from everybody else who was on Fox News. He was often very critical of the Republican Party. He had a spat with James Comer at one point. He uh, brought on Christy Nome after she uh, vetoed that bill that would protect women's sports from uh, men who identify as transgender and pressed her very, very hard. So I don't think that's necessarily new. I know that him and Dave Portnoy have a friendship going back quite a while. Dave used to be a regular guest on his show on Fox News as well. 
Um, what does Dave know about politics? I don't know, probably no more than the rest of us. Um, but maybe Tucker's just trying to get maybe like the average Joe's perspective on what's happening leading into the primary. I do think it's interesting um, that they both agree on the age question. Um, I'm a little bit softer on it just because I don't think age is necessarily an indicator that someone is not cognitively um, prepared for the rigors of a job. We've seen, you know, 60-year-olds who have much uh, worse awareness, situational awareness than people who are 80 years old. So age is not necessarily a determining factor. So I'm actually more in line probably with Nikki Haley on this, where maybe there should be some kind of cognitive test as opposed to just an age limit. Yeah, I think it's interesting to get the the average Joe's perspective and also someone who's a prom prominent figure on the right in the United States perspective as to whether or not Donald Trump should be on the debate stage. So much is left up to party leaders when it comes to making decisions about how primaries should go and how primary debates should go. And this rule that you have to promise to ultimately support the nominee, all kinds of rules that go into who can participate, who can even be a candidate running uh, with the Republican Party or the Democrat. Democratic Party, which has its own rules, those rules being governed by party officials. It's deemed party business. It's not regulated by election laws. But to see, you know, the country divided by these terms of, you know, you're either left or you're right, you're Democrat or you're Republican, and how that complicates things when really effectively how our political process works in the United States is, okay, we know Donald Trump is a candidate running on the right in the U.S., whether we like how the political spectrum is divided up or not, that's what it's going to be. So, of course, he should have been on that debate stage. It just makes common sense. And it shows how much party business gets in the way of the normal democratic process most people would expect, just common sense wise. Yeah, and I think that's why Tucker's show, both on Twitter and previously on Fox News, was so popular among people, including Democrats. He um, would mostly get, have actually more Democrats watching his show than CNN or MSNBC would, particularly in the Target demo. And it's because he just bucked party lines. He wasn't interested in trying to, you know, determine or trying to gather loyalty with any particular political party. It seemed like he was just more interested in calling balls and strikes. We'll be back with more Rising after this. Republican candidate Vivek Ramaswamy earned the praise of journalist Ross Coldhart for his enthusiasm and support of UAP transparency. Here's Coldhart in his own words. How refreshing to have a presidential candidate being prepared to speak candidly without embarrassment. Uh, this is what uh, Vivek Ramaswamy said ahead of the House Oversight Committee hearings. He said, I'm calling on committee members to publicly ask witnesses the following seven questions. We can handle the truth, he wrote. Has the US government become aware of actual evidence of ET or otherwise unexplained forms of intelligence? If so, when did this first occur? What are the names and titles of the people with direct first-hand knowledge of and access to the crash retrieval programs? Which facilities, material bases, hard to recovered material? What special access programs cover this information and how is it possible they've evaded oversight for so long? When did these programs begin and who authorised them? What level of security clearance is required to fully access these programs? Which private corporations are involved? Has there been an active US government disinformation program? All really good questions. Hey. 
Ramaswamy reposted the clip captioning, quote, this issue has been raised by credible and decorated members of our military and is currently being investigated by Congress. We deserve a government that stops lying to its people and just comes out clean about what we know and what we don't. We can handle the truth and we deserve a government that gives it to us. Meanwhile, just yesterday, the Pentagon unveiled the launch of its AARO, or All Domain Anomaly Resolution Office, dedicated to publicly addressing anomalous phenomena. Here's a spokesperson with the Department of Defense with the announcement. In other news, the department is launching a website on the All Domain Anomaly Resolution Office to provide the public with information concerning Aero and its efforts to understand and resolve unidentified anomalous phenomena. This website will provide information, including videos and photos, on resolved UAP cases as they're declassified and approved for public release. The website's other content includes reporting trends and frequently asked questions section, as well as links to official reports, transcripts, press releases, and other resources that the public may find useful. The department is committed to transparency with the American people on RO's work on UAPs. The website will serve as a one-stop shop for all publicly, in, publicly available information related to Aero and UAP, and Aero will regularly update the website with its most recent activities and findings as new information is cleared for public release. I was admittedly quite annoyed when Chris Christie laughed about the UFO question during that Fox News debate, so I'm glad that Vivek Ramaswamy is calling him out on it. Um, as viewers know, on this program, we've been talking about this issue for quite a long time, and we covered the congressional hearings pretty extensively. We've interviewed multiple experts about this, and it's, it's real. It's not a joke. Um, there's obviously still more evidence that needs to be uncovered. The government needs to be more transparent about all of this. But acting like this is like some imaginary fairy tale is, is kind of infuriating to the people who have put their careers on the line trying to come forward with what they know, um, from David Grush to some of the other whistleblowers. They say that they've actually provided the names of firsthand witnesses to Congress for them to investigate and talk to these people directly. Of course, a lot of this information is classified, but to laugh it off like that I thought was really wrong from Chris Christie. He does a lot of wrong things, to be fair, um, but this one did definitely annoy me, Jessica. Yeah, I can't believe I'm saying this, but I agree with Vivek Ramaswamy here. Uh, <laughs> it's an issue that's beyond our planet, not a coincidence. No, I've agreed with him about stuff before. He's He can be a reasonable guy. His take on the consolidization of passive investment uh, with firms like BlackRock, I support that criticism. It's a very agreeable criticism, unless you're an investment banker of some sorts. But the way Christie handled that response just made me frustrated with the moderators, because wouldn't you want to get another perspective from the, the field at that point? When you have someone laugh off your question, ask, you know, raise your hands. Would you tell the truth to the public like they did with so many other questions? I was just like screaming at the screen when they started asking the question about UAPs and UFOs because it's so relevant right now. And Ramaswamy makes a good point to say that you have decorated members of the military and intelligence community talking about this. Think about how detailed the stories uh, that Schellenberger corroborated among members of the military and intelligence community. To have that amount of people check in with a story and corroborate it is like top tier journalism. 
I think back to Saddam Hussein being reported to have weapons of mass destruction. No one was like, I'll believe it when I see it with that. But for some reason, we have so many members of the military and intelligence community over a long period of time corroborating this story, saying, yes, the U.S. government has some craft, has potentially some pilots, but definitely has observed the presence of UFOs and UAPs that are beyond our Earth's technology. That's a big deal. That's not the kind of thing Or if you are a reasonable and rational person, you say, I'm waiting for more evidence. You say, I'm waiting for more evidence if you don't want to believe they exist. So Chris Christie laughing it off, making it seem like an unserious issue, I think plays into this unnecessary skepticism that so many people have about the UAP UFO issue. That's a really good point about the moderators not following up on the question because it did make it seem like it was maybe a throwaway question or a question that they were using in, in, in the attempt to get clicks or get eyeballs on social media so that people could point and laugh about how uh, this issue you know, made it into the debate. It was kind of a similar uh, phenomenon to when they used that uh, song from Oliver Anthony to open up a discussion about the economy. And Oliver Anthony responded to it and said, I'm talking about the people on this stage. This is not a Republican or Democrat song. This is an anti-establishment song. And so it was sort of the second instance of Fox misreading the room um, in in that debate situation. And Unfortunately, with so many of these debates, we see as well that the crowds are not grassroots supporters. They're not the party base. Um, In many cases, they are filled with consultants and donors and individuals who are very entrenched into the political process. I know people were were very confused when they were watching the debate and they would hear half of the room cheer for a response on foreign policy from Vivek Ramaswamy, and then the other half would cheer when Nikki Haley was taking a much more neoconservative approach and wondering why is there not some party consensus on this? I mean, part of it is that the Republican Party is divided on some issues, but it's also because you have people in that room who have money tied up in particular responses or particular candidates. So it's just not a great representation of where people who are involved in the grassroots are actually voting and what they actually believe. So these debates in general are just not always the best way to gleam, uh, you know, what candidates are going to do once they're in office. They have their responses very much pre-rehearsed and pre-canned. Um, So I don't know if there's a better solution. I mean, I I think, of course, candidates should debate and they can be very illuminating. But at the same time, I find myself often frustrated by what questions are asked, what topics are ignored, and the response from people in the room giving people the false impression of where the support lies. Yeah, and of course, the canned responses you get that sound like they practiced it in front of the mirror five times before they went on stage or 500 times before they went on stage that night. It's just so robotic. And I think Ross Colter saying the way this candidate asked these questions about the UAPs without sounding embarrassed tells us a lot because the general public very interested in the alien UAP UFO questioning, very interested in all of that. So where would the embarrassment come from? Being judged by other people running for public office, being judged 
by the political class, that's not who you have to be accountable to. And so I think that that way of acting a certain way and messaging a certain way and what issues are okay to have strong opinions about or bring up during presidential debates or presidential campaigns, that plays in so much to our politics. And so many people are so sick of those rules governing the democratic process. We're not embarrassed for you to ask about life on other planets, especially considering the science, that it's more likely than not that there are other life forms in this massive universe. And so the way that the political class has controlled the narratives and therefore controlled political candidates' campaigns by making certain things socially acceptable to talk about or not by presidential candidates, that has such a stronghold on our democracy. And I think people are so sick of it. And that's why Vivek kind of won over the crowd with some of his responses, because he's definitely a candidate that is not embarrassed to bring some of that stuff up. Uh, he definitely doesn't have a lot of shame the way he was playing tennis and grunting and rapping to lose yourself by Eminem. <laughs> I think he got a cease and desist from Eminem over that. But I think bringing up the those issues and questioning the usual code of conduct that's kind of unspoken is really good. Yeah, I mean, we heard the other candidates on that stage trying to embarrass him for his lack of political experience or his lack of foreign policy experience, which he sort of laughed and brushed off by saying, I'm actually glad I don't have the so-called experience that you do because you're the ones who got us into this current mess that we're in. And if you uh, rewind back to 2015 in some of the early Republican primary debates then, there was one moment where Donald Trump was going after Jeb Bush as basically being being bought and paid for and being a creation of the political consultant class and the crowd boos. And he responds by saying, you're paid to boo me. You are the consultants. You are the donors. This is why you're here. Of course you don't like me. And so that was really the moment um, where, where I think the veil was kind of lifted on, on who actually gets to sit in on those debates and how our candidates are chosen. And so to hear Vivek kind of mirror that in, in this uh, previous debate was pretty fascinating. I wonder if he didn't go back and watch those early Trump performances. More rising after this. Leftist commentator Kyle Kalinske is being accused of shaming 2024 Green Party candidate Cornell West for running outside of the party duopoly. Let's watch. Now, on the Cornell West front, look, understand something. I would like to talk to him and ask him, what do you think you're doing here? Like, what do you think you're doing here? Do you actually think you can win? Because you can't, because we don't have ranked choice voting. We, we still have first-past-the-post voting. So in your... What's your highest goal that you think you could achieve? Is it the 5% for the Green Party? Is that what it is? So that you can get matching funds and make it more viable. But again, I hate to tell you, the Green Party and, and no third party will be viable unless and until we get ranked choice voting. Because until that point, there's always going to be this perception, you're just a spoiler candidate. And by the way, if we get into a general election and it's Biden versus Trump, and Trump ends up winning because Cornell West got 5% of the vote or something or 3% of the vote and he gets blamed, that's going to set the movement back so much. People are going to look at leftists as spoiled brats who are just getting in the way. Now, that's totally separate from the question as to whether or not the spoiler effect actually is real. But there's going to be a perception that it's real and everybody's going to blame the left for Donald Trump winning. Some of Kalinske's viewers are calling this a mask-off moment for the YouTuber since he pretty much said the exact opposite two months ago. 
backlash that's happening online. There's a decent amount of backlash where people are like, what are you doing? Like, do you know like who these people are? And then I see a lot of people making a point, which I think is a fair point, which is like, if you're gonna run, run as a Green Party or an independent, because the Green Party, for example, I think the last election they had ballot access for 48 states. Yeah, they have a real organization. Yeah, even like the Libertarians have between like 48 states and 50, and all the states, yeah. you know what I mean? So as far as third parties go, the only ones that are even remotely viable, and I use that term loosely, is the Green Party and the Libertarians. I mean, so, you also have, you know, DSA out there, which has never fielded a presidential candidate before, but they have, you know, chapters nationwide, and it's a real organization with some sort of, you know, infrastructure that could theoretically be mustered behind you. Back in 2020, he tweeted, as a left winger who will not vote for Biden, I want you to know I'm 100% okay with you blaming me if Trump wins a second term. I mean it, blame me. Then get to thinking real hard how you're gonna get me to support your candidate the next time. Maybe even ask me, I'll tell you. So uh, Kyle Kalinske, maybe a little bit hypocritical. I don't know, Jessica, um, that original tweet that he sent talking about how he wasn't going to vote for Joe Biden and he's fine with being blamed for Biden losing because he refuses to support him. And then criticizing someone for daring to run as a third party candidate seems pretty inconsistent. I don't know Kyle Kalinske's background. I don't listen to Kyle Kalinske. I don't know anything about him, but I can judge based off of what he has said there <laughs> that he has not spent a lot of time as a grassroots organizer. And I think when you're a political commentator and your commentary isn't routed in facts, in data, or the perceptions of the public or a political movement, you tend to get led astray. You tend to contradict yourself. And that's really what we see happening here. If you are someone who believes in what Cornell West platform is, which I assume, and I'm sure his audience does as well, uh, assume Kyle Klinsky does. But the, the argument he's making there is about viability of the movement, viability of the, the campaign that Cornell West is running. And he's complaining that if this doesn't go well for him and he pulls 5% of the vote or what have you and it spoils the election and Donald Trump becomes president and those votes are taken away from Joe Biden, it is your job as a member of the left and a political commentator that's very popular, explain why that's not the case. Don't just be like, hey, this could cause some criticism down the line. Yeah, okay, what's your argument for why the criticism's invalid? We'll never get to a place where we have a viable third party that actually represents the ideas of the left if the left never runs candidates. There's about 60% of the country that's participating at most. This is not an argument about who's spoiling the election. Cornell West running is about pulling the 40% of the country that doesn't participate in the political process because they don't feel they're represented, because they don't believe in it. That's what populist movement should be about. So any excuse about, you know, Cornell West just being a spoiler and that's why he shouldn't run is just service to the Democratic Party, just quelling any dissent from the left so that leftists have no options but to vote for the candidate that is a little bit closer to their views than the other one. That's a state we've been in for far too long. And there have been many candidates that have run to try and shake things up. But Kyle Klinsky's argument there doesn't test against his other arguments. He's made himself very well 
or the the typical views of a leftist. So I just wonder where it's coming from as a political commentator. What makes you decide, you know what, I'm going to start making excuses for the Democratic Party, actually. It seems like a big switch up, and I'm curious as to where that comes from. Yeah, he keeps talking about the perception mattering more than the the reality of whether or not Cornell West is a spoiler candidate. And I think you're right. He should be the one explaining to people why that's not the case. Um, if you're not in media to change perceptions, then really why even bother? That's kind of the whole point why we get on these screens and talk to people is to try to explain the issues to them. Um, sometimes I learn more from the viewers than they learn from me, to be fair, but, um, but that's always the goal. And then also, how are you going to sit there and criticize a third-party candidate as a member of the Democratic Party when the establishment is so hellbent, it seems, on getting rid of progressive candidates? I mean, they basically stole the primary from Bernie back in 2016. So what is the alternative that Kyle Kalinske would suggest? The Democratic establishment clearly has no interest in listening to uh, very uh, many progressives in their party. They're, they clearly are not interested in allowing a outside candidate that they did not handpick to take over the uh, primary process. So it seems like, in some cases, having a third-party challenger is the only way for that segment of the party to have their voice be heard. Yeah, I think it's dangerous, too. You have this guy, Kyle Kalinske, to me, looks like a lost member of NSYNC or the Backstreet Boys right now. I was now. hoping someone would bring think... up his frosted tips. <laughs> yeah, please, we had to. I don't think that's going to connect. You and I are both coming from blue-collar backgrounds. I don't think someone like Kyle Kalinske with a billion books behind him and the frosted tips is connecting with a working-class audience. I think his audience is progressives who are politically engaged, which, if you are the Democratic Party, that's a valuable base because I'm sure those people have blue-collar family members that also vote. These are the people that are paying attention to politics, that make time for it for whatever reason. Uh, that is what they do. Those people are very important in the political and democratic process in the United States because they will remind their family about elections. They will tell them their views about elections. If you want the left to win, you should be giving your audience the talking points to win over their family members for voting for a leftist candidate. That just is common sense. And so to me, this just reeks of Democratic Party interference, Democratic Party consultant going and talking to Kyle Kalinske and saying like, listen, you know, this is our argument for this. This is why that video we heard you uh, and your partner in the car with the sunglasses on saying this stuff. It's kind of dangerous for us. Here's our vision. Uh, I think people who are media figures are susceptible to that kind of influence from members of the Democratic Party. This doesn't seem like it's something coming from a member of the left who wants our movement to succeed. And that's really scary because I'm sure there's members of his audience who listen to what he says and relay it. And so it's not really about the commentator having a huge base of, of voters who are progressives or members of the working class who are swayable by Cornell West. It's about having a base of people who go on and talk to their family members who are. And that's really scary as a member of the left, that someone could grow an audience based off of a leftist perspective and then switch up when it's election time. Yeah, I, I don't know much about Kyle Kalinske's, Kalinske's background either. I know the woman he's in the car with is his wife, Crystal Ball. Um, who hosts her own program and is, is kind of considered a member of the progressive left. Um, Kyle was one of the co-founder of Justice Democrats, which is 
a PAC that requires candidates to refuse to accept um, uh, corporate PAC money. So I don't know if he doesn't necessarily have um, the grassroots organizing experience, but clearly there's still some inconsistency here, some hypocrisy here, and he's taken a lot of heat on that from the left. So we'll see if maybe this perhaps hurts some of his popularity among the audience. Yeah, I think it, I think it will. I hope it will. Because when you have someone not making a strategic plan for us to gain power to see our political agenda ever enacted in the United States, how can that person be a leader? That's really what this should be about, is winning over either hearts and minds on the issues. That's what you know a media presence could be used for, uh, persuading people of your particular political persuasion, or you know saying strategically the way that we gain power is not the way of following the Democratic Party. There's a lot of different ways you can use your public platform. And I think just building one off of being a a leftist and gaining people's attention based off of communicating those ideas in a receivable way and convincing way on a regular basis to counter common narratives and the common media narratives we hear in mainstream media. That's that's good. That's useful. But then when you switch up on your entire audience and steer them in another direction, it's something we've seen far too often in the left. And I think if you get into this industry, uh, and you you get into this industry and you make a platform for yourself as a reporter, as a journalist, as a commentator, people will follow you because they trust you. People follow people. They're sick of the mainstream media. They watch shows like Rising and other online shows now. Streaming is big. And it's because they realize that you found someone you trust with a background you respect and you want to hear the news and what's going on in politics from their perspective. And then there's a lot of people that can be led astray if you decide to switch up on them. It's just, I get that people change their mind, but I don't think that's what happened here because Kyle didn't explain, you know, I used to support Cornell West and now I have different thoughts on this. It was a very paternalistic, what do you think you're doing running like this? And it happens a lot in politics from political commentators and I don't know where it comes from, but it makes me feel for audiences that have been led astray by, you know, progressive networks and by progressive commentators. You know, Tucker Carlson said something in that interview with Dave Portnoy we talked about on this program where he said he never really looked at his ratings, even when he was at Fox and he was the number one show on cable. Of course, kind of a luxury not to look at ratings when you're number one. But he said he never really dove too much into the numbers because he was worried that it would lead to a self-obsession and that his show would be tailored based on what he believed the viewers wanted rather than what actually interested him and what he actually believed. And I think that was a good warning for anyone who does this uh, media job for a living. That does it for us this week at Rising. Jessica, it's been a pleasure as always to break down the Friday news with you. You as well, Amber, another Blue Collar Friday here at Rising. Be sure to like, share, and subscribe so you never miss any content. And for those of you who like to listen while on the go, we are now available anywhere you listen to podcasts. We'll see you next week. Bye, y'all.